Good morning. It's good to see all of you here. Thank you for coming and joining us for worship here at Ivy Creek this morning. We're excited that you are here. If you've brought your Bibles with you, and I certainly hope that you have, would you take them out and turn with me once again to the book of Genesis and to chapter 41. Genesis chapter 41. We are going to continue our study through this book and our study of the life of Joseph. And, and as the subtitle to our sermon series is, to, we're going to look at the story that explains our stories. And so that's what we're doing, and uh, that's what we want to continue doing this morning. I was thinking this week, uh, as I was preparing for this, this morning's sermon, I was thinking about how um, all of us seem to enjoy a good rags-to-riches story. We all kind of like one of those stories that, that um, talk about someone who comes from an impoverished and humble background to to all of a sudden finding themselves elevated to positions of power and prestige. And I thought about the story of Andrew Carnegie. Many of you may are obviously familiar with it, I would think. Uh, he was born to poor Irish parents. He shared one-bedroom homes with his relatives when he lived here in the United States. But, but Carnegie wound up taking advantage of the work that he found by being making himself really um, indispensable to his employers and then by also um, leveraging friendships that he made with influential people in the town where he was at. And, and thanks to a keen eye for investments, uh, he was able to turn his earnings into a massive fortune in the steel industry. I also think about men like George Soros, who was a 17-year-old refugee from war-torn Budapest, Hungary. Uh, he lived through some of the most difficult times in World War II and the persecutions that went along with that. Uh, Soros not only survived to tell the tale of, of, of that, but he ultimately reshaped the financial landscape in the modern world, and he became an investor and a businessman who, whose net worth totals in, in the multiple billions of dollars. And we could talk about other folks, too, that we would, names we'd be familiar with, folks like Henry Ford and Walt Disney, for example, uh, Ralph Lauren, Steve Jobs, Oprah Winfrey, Many other names that we could talk about from people who, who came from very modest and very humble beginnings, but ultimately ended up uh, being in, in great positions. And, and it was interesting, I was reading an article this week that was entitled, The Irresistible Appeal of the Rags to Riches Story. And in it, the writer explains that, that we really never grow tired of those kind of stories and hearing of someone's rise from poverty and hardship because... Such stories motivate us to dream bigger dreams. And not only that, they, they, they motivate us to turn our past tragedies into today's advantages. And the article goes on to point out that most, the most successful, commercially successful Hollywood movies tend to always have happy endings. And the reason that's the case is because we're just naturally wired for a satisfactory ending to struggle. And it, that kind of helped me be able to think about this text that's in front of us this morning from Genesis chapter 41 because perhaps it is that ingrained desire to see someone rise above their circumstances and to witness one's conquest over adversity that makes Genesis 41 such an appealing chapter to read. Bodie Bauckham, who is a Southern Baptist pastor, has said that this chapter is the most pivotal in the Joseph narrative. And in fact, it is one of the most pivotal chapters in the entire Bible. But he also warns that this chapter is one of the most misinterpreted chapters in the entire Bible as well. And the reason that's the case is because 
we tend to give it this desire for we want to see that Joseph moved from the prison to the palace. We love to make that the big payoff in the text. But as a quick glance at our Bibles will tell us, there's a lot that comes after Genesis chapter 41. There's a whole big story still left to be told. And those of us who have been studying through Genesis know that that's the case. In other words, chapter 41 is not the pinnacle of the book of Genesis, and nor is it the, the be-all and the end-all of Joseph's life. In fact, I propose that if we read it that way and interpret it that way, we will miss exactly what Moses would have us to know and what the Holy Spirit of God would have us to know. So that's a good introduction to the text this morning. we got chapter 41. This 57 verses, and we're going to read every one of them. So let's get to it. Verse 1. Then it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he stood by the river. And suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows. And this is my favorite line in all the text. They were fine looking and fat. That gives me hope. And those cows fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them in the, out of the river, ugly and gaunt. And they stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows. So Pharaoh awoke. And he slept and dreamed a second time. And suddenly seven heads of grain came up on a stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven thin heads... Blighted by the east wind sprang up after them, and the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed it was a dream. Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, and there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I remember my faults this day. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker, we each had a dream in one night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now, there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard, and we told him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. Each man, he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came to pass, just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me to my office, and he hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon. And he shaved, changed his clothing, and came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I stood on the bank of the river, and suddenly seven cows came up out of the river, looking uh, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. And behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly, and gaunt such ugliness as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the gaunt and the ugly cows came up at the first seven, the fat cows, and when they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were just as ugly as at the time at the beginning. So I awoke. Also I saw in my dream, and suddenly seven heads came up on the one stalk, full and good. And behold, seven heads were withered and thin and blighted by the east wind sprang up after them, and the thin heads devoured the seven good heads. So I told this to the magicians 
But there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one. And the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after them and the seven years and the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout the land of Egypt, but after them seven years of famine will arise, and the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. Now, therefore... Let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh and let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall, shall be a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land may not perish during the famine. So the advice was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to the servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. You shall be over my house, and all the people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and he put it on Joseph's hand and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot and he had, in which he had and they cried out before him, bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnah Paniah. And he gave him as his wife, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera, priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out over the presence of, from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. Now in the seven plentiful years, the ground brought forth abundantly. So he gathered up all the food of the seven years which were in the land of Egypt, and he laid up the food in the cities. And he laid up in every city food of the fields which surrounded them. Joseph gathered very much grain as the sand of the sea and until he stopped counting, for it was immeasurable. And to Joseph were born two sons before the years of the famine came, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for God has made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Then the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended. And the seven years of famine began to come, and Joseph, as Joseph had said. And the famine was in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Then Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, do. And the famine was over all the face of the earth. And Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians 
and the famine became severe in the land of Egypt. So all the countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all the lands. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege of being able to read it, to hear it read, to study it, and then to apply it to our lives. We pray that your Holy Spirit would aid us in being able to do that this morning. We pray for our brothers and sisters across this world who are not afforded this great opportunity. This morning I have already just considered that there are many who would be challenged, many who would be persecuted for doing what we have just done. Father, we know that that they need our prayers. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. We lift them up. We pray for comfort for them and for peace. We pray that you would continue to spur them by the very word of God that we too are spurred by. May you cause our hearts to be warmed by your Holy Spirit speaking to us through it. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Um, the truth is there is a lot in this, in this chapter. Uh, so many different storylines, so many intriguing facts um, that I struggled with how many sermons that I should preach from this passage. And I've pro- chosen to preach just one. And some of you are probably excited about that. And some of you are thinking, oh my goodness, there's 57 verses. How are we, we going to get out before lunchtime? Um, my goal is to keep the narrative moving. And that's really the reason why I've I really just want to preach the one sermon from this text and because I believe moving the narrative along is important. But in order to do that, we cannot get lost in the forest because of the trees. And so um, I want to, I want, that's something that can easily happen in a text this large. But with that being said, I'm going to do my best to stay focused this morning. And to aid me in doing that, I've listed some points for you that are just kind of out there for us to hang our thoughts on. They're hooks, as I like to call them, for us to hang our thoughts on. And that's going to help us. It's going to keep me accountable, and it's going to keep us running through it and me not chase any rabbits, okay? So the very first one that I want you to note this morning that I've given you is this. It's God's timing. God's timing. We, God's timing is introduced to us in that very opening verse. Let me read it, the first words for that, that chapter again. Then it came to pass at the end of two full years. Now, you remember where we left Joseph last week in chapter 40. We left him in prison. We left him there after he had told Pharaoh's cupbearer and butler, listen, you're going to be released, but when you're released and you're back serving Pharaoh, would you remember me? Remember me so that I can be taken out of prison. In fact, but what happens is, is when the cupbearer goes back to his service work for Pharaoh, it's as if he just completely forgets all about Joseph. And, and he goes back to serving in the position he had been in before, and he doesn't remember his days in the dungeon. He doesn't remember his cellmate. And two full years pass. Two years is a long time to be forgotten about. Um, but as we noted last week, though the cupbearer forgot about Joseph, God never forgot about Joseph. In fact, God was working out his plans just as he had always intended to do and just as he had always designed. He was working those plans out according to his timing. Moses tells us that it was after those two full years had passed that Pharaoh had a couple of dreams. I'm not going to go back and repeat all of them to you again, but I just would note to you that those seven really fine and fat cows were the good-looking ones of the bunch. And though they represented seven years of, of plenty. 
But then there were those seven ugly cows that came up and they were thin and gaunt looking. That represented seven years of famine. The same was true of the, the seven plump grains of, of or corn or grains of, of wheat that were there. They represented the years of, of, of good and plenty. And then the seven blighted uh, ears were, were representing the seven years of famine. And, and all of that was, was part of what had taken place, but he didn't understand that yet. And so he calls in, Pharaoh has this dream, he calls in all of his magi magicians, he calls in all of his wise men. Nobody can explain the dream. All he's got is the imagery in his head. And because no one could explain the dream, we read in verse 8 that Pharaoh's spirit was troubled. He was left anguished. He was nearly frantic. And I just... I think that's such an interesting thing. Here you have the most powerful man on the planet. He's got at his beck and call all of the wisest men in all the world who could come and tell him things. He, he himself was considered to be a very wise man, and yet he is nearly frantic over the fact that, that he doesn't understand dreams. And, and here's the thing. He needed somebody to come and interpret his dreams for him, and yet no one could. And it was at that critical moment, that pivotal moment, that a light kind of went off in the cupbearer's cup mind. It was as if that was the moment that God finally brought Joseph back to his attention. And suddenly he related to Pharaoh that when he had been in prison, back two years earlier, that he had met in prison this Hebrew who was able to interpret dreams. In fact, he could interpret those dreams correctly, not only of himself, but of Pharaoh's baker as well and that what he had said would come to pass did come to pass and then notice how quickly things change according to verse 14 Pharaoh listen to the verbs Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon and he shaved changed his clothes and came to Pharaoh six verbs all of them moving the action forward but the main word you get there is that all of that happened quickly now, I propose to you that when, when Joseph woke up that morning in the dungeon, he probably thought it was just going to be another day in prison. Another day in the dungeon doing the things that he'd been doing. I mean, after all, two years had passed by. He, he had most likely not thought any more about the fact that the cupbearer was ever going to send for him, that Pharaoh would ever come for him. But unexpectedly and out of nowhere, he's whisked away. He's shaven. Egyptians didn't like beards. So he, he stands before Pharaoh not as a Hebrew, as Hebrews did like beards. He stands before Pharaoh as an Egyptian, dressed in Egyptian clothing, looking like an Egyptian. And he's standing there before the most powerful man in the known world. And here is where you and I, I think, need to, to, to take notice of God's timing. You see, had that cupbearer, remember Joseph right after he had been released from prison, Joseph may also have been released. And, and he might have left Egypt and gone back to the land of Canaan and he would have missed the opportunity to interpret Joseph's dreams. Had the cupbearer not remembered Joseph when he did and remembered him later, then Pharaoh likely would have not cared about Joseph because at that particular moment, the, the, the anxiousness of having his dreams interpreted would have gone by. But according to God's timing, the cupbearer remembered Joseph at just the right time so that Joseph could stand before Pharaoh as God's messenger. So the first thing that I think we're confronted with in this passage is God's timing. 
And what we must confess is that God is never early and God is never late. God is always right on time with everything that he does. And I'm sure that those long two years that Joseph remained in that prison were not fun. As a matter of fact, if you go back and read verse 40, you can hear him. He's begging the cupbearer to tell Pharaoh about his situation because he wants to be freed from prison. He wants to be out from underneath those chains. It was not a fun place to be for those two years. But listen, God had a plan. And the cupbearer remembered Joseph at just the right moment to serve as the means for Joseph's ultimate rise to power. And so the first thing that we need to know and we need to understand is that God has a timing and his timing is always perfect. And it is that thought that leads me to the second hook that I provided for you there. And it's this, it's God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. Now, we could say, just as Alan Ross has uh, with regard to this passage, that the sovereignty of God is the underlying theme of this entire chapter. And certainly we can recognize that God is orchestrating the events that we read about here. He is behind not only Joseph's sudden remembrance by the cupbearer, but as we will see, he is behind the dreams that Pharaoh had. But before we even get there, I want to draw your attention to the first words, really the first word that Joseph said to Pharaoh when he was in his presence. The king looks at Joseph in verse 15 and he says, Joseph, you come to me highly recommended. I've had a dream that no one can interpret, but I hear, I hear that you can do that sort of thing. And Joseph looks at him in verse 16 and says, Nope, it's not in me. I can't do it. It's one word in Hebrew, and it really, that's why in English it's hard because we can't get it into one word in Hebrew, in, in, in English. The closest we can do is this, not me. Now, you just think about that. Joseph has just been brought out of prison to stand before Pharaoh to do the exact thing that he looks in Pharaoh's eyes and says, I can't do it. And we might think, well, that ain't very smart. I mean, at the very least, you're probably going back to prison. And at worst, you may have your head severed from your body. But Joseph stands and looks Pharaoh in the eye and says, it's not in me to interpret your dreams, but God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. In other words, Joseph says, I cannot interpret dreams, but the God that I serve surely can. And he will tell you what your dream means, and he will ease your troubled mind as with, with regard to the interpretation. The same thing that he says here is really what he told the, the cupbearer back in chapter 40, verse 8. If you remember, he told the cupbearer there, he says, do, do not interpretations belong to God? Joseph stood before the most sovereign king, earthly king, and looked him in the eye and said, God's sovereign power will be the one that interprets your dream for you. Now, Pharaoh was evidently satisfied with, with that answer, so he begins to repeat his dreams to Joseph, and he tells him about the cows, and he tells him about the, the, the heads of grain. But what I want you to notice is how Joseph begins to interpret Joseph's, Pharaoh's dream there in verse 25. First of all, Joseph reveals that the two dreams are linked together and that they are just one dream. They even, the similarities between them actually mean that God is just telling one message. He's giving him one message. And then he says this, God has shown Pharaoh what he 
is about to do. God has shown you, Pharaoh, what he is about to do. In other words, Joseph emphasizes God's sovereignty by telling Pharaoh that God is the one who is in control and God is the one who will bring his dreams to pass. That's how he begins his interpretation. But then notice what he says in the middle of the interpretation down in verse 28. He says, this is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Notice again Joseph's emphasis on God's sovereignty. His emphasis is on the fact that God's divine will and God's divine initiative are what is going to move things forward. He is the one who's going to bring about what he has decided to do. And then Joseph tells the king that, that the seven fat cows and the seven plump grains, are, that's all about the, the seven years of plenty and that the others are about the, the seven years of famine. And then for a third time, down in verse 32, notice what he says. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God. And God will shortly bring it to pass. Now, I just want you to consider what a profound statement that was and what a profound statement it still is. You see, these Egyptians, they were, they were polytheists. They worshipped many, many gods. They had gods everywhere in Egypt. And, and they were all gods with little g's. And even Pharaoh was considered to be a god. But all of the priests and all of the wise men, all of the magicians who all worshipped those little g gods all throughout Egypt, none of them could interpret Pharaoh's dream. Not even Pharaoh himself. But here Joseph is, this Hebrew from the land of Canaan, and he stands before the most powerful man in the known world. And he tells them, look, there is a God who created everything. A God who is over all. He is a God who not only created everything, he is a God who is still at work in his creation. He is the one who will bring these things to pass. He is not absent. He is not uninvolved, but rather he sovereignly brings his will to pass. And he is going to do it in his timing. And there's going to be seven years of plenty. God's going to do that. But following that, there's going to be seven years of famine. And God's going to do that too. And he's going to do it shortly. And then after that happens, God is going to cause all things to come together just as he designs because he is God and he is sovereign. Even though Joseph stood in the most opulent palace in the known world, and even though the king before whom he stood was so powerful that he could have snapped his fingers and Joseph's head been taken from his body, Joseph confidently stood and declared the sovereignty of God over the events that would transpire. Now let me say this. If Joseph could clearly... Declare God's sovereignty over events that would happen in the future. Don't you know that he did so with full confidence that God was sovereign over the events that had happened to him 
in the past, particularly as he had been in the prison and as he had been in Potiphar's house and as he had been thrown into the pit in the land of Canaan by his own brothers. Did you ever think about the fact that as he sat there in that, in that pit in the land of Canaan, thrown there by his brothers, and, and Judah was the one that says, we ought to just sell him and get some money out of him instead of killing him, that it just happened to be at that time that the Ishmaelite traders came by and bought him? And it just so happened that those Ishmaelite traders were heading down to Egypt. And it just so happened that they put him on the, the, the slave block and sold him to a man It just happened to be the chief of the guard in Pharaoh's kingdom. It just happened to be that he wound up elevating himself to the point of being the manager over all of Potiphar's house. And it just happened to be that when he was, when he was accused of, of molesting his wife, that he was thrown in just the right prison at just the right time to encounter just the right two guys from Pharaoh's house who came, the cupbearer and the baker. And it just happened to be that he stayed there until that time when Pharaoh was given these two dreams. Do you think there was any doubt in Joseph's mind, that God was sovereign over all of those events, if he could predict what was happening in the future, he certainly knew that God was over what had happened to him in the past. And this is my point. Joseph didn't find himself in the position he was before Pharaoh because of coincidence or because of luck or because of chance. He was there because of God's sovereignty and God's timing. Which leads me to the third hook that I think we ought to get from this text. The third hook is Joseph's promotion. I want you to notice that following Joseph's announcement that God's hand, by God's hand, Egypt would experience these seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine, that he goes on to advise Pharaoh of what he should do in light of what was coming. Verse 32 emphasizes the certainty and the imminence. It's going to come about quickly of what's going to happen. But this was, not, this was not a call to resignation, to throw one's hands up and just say, well, the famine's coming, there's nothing we can do. No, this was actually a call to action. Joseph, didn't, Joseph suggested, look, you need to find you a man. You need to find you an administrator. You need to find you a manager. Specifically, he says, you need to find a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. And here's what you need to do. You need to make sure that 20% of everything that's produced in the land during those seven, those seven plentiful years, you need to make sure that all of that is stored and set aside so that it can be a reserve that you can pull from during the seven years of famine. And such a suggestion seemed like such a good piece of advice from Pharaoh that he consulted his servants. And then he says, could we find such a man, such a wise man as this, in whom is the Spirit of God? And he promotes Joseph on the spot. Now let me just say, I do not think that Pharaoh suddenly became converted at this point. I don't think that because of what happened there, he suddenly became a, a follower of of. of, of Joseph's God, but I do think he saw something in Joseph that, that was unique, something that spurred him, something that he says, there's something about that guy, and he's smart. He knows, he knows not only how to interpret dreams, he knows how to apply those dreams. He knows what application needs to come along with it. And so he says, is there anyone else that we can put? I don't think so. And so he promotes Joseph and he tells him, inasmuch as God has shown you all this, verse 39, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. 
You shall be over my house and all my people and shall be ruled according to your word and only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over the land of Egypt. And then he takes his ring off, puts it on Joseph's finger, he dresses him in fine linen, puts a gold chain around his neck, puts him in the best chariot, the one right behind his own. Everybody's going out in front of him telling him, Bow the knee, bow the knee. And then Pharaoh gave Joseph a new name. He gave him an Egyptian name. And then he gave Joseph an Egyptian wife, a wife who came from a highly respected, powerfully connected Egyptian family. And it's right about here. If we're not careful, our fascination with the rags to riches story will kick in. You see, it's right here that we can get all Hollywood themed and we think, man, that would make a great motion picture. We could talk about how the guy was thrown into prison and how all of a sudden he was promoted to being prime minister of Egypt. Man, that would sell tickets. But you see, the whole thing brings us to the, is this the pinnacle of Joseph's life? You see, we really could take this and, 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 and we could make an application this way. We might even be able to take this part of the story, cut out the rest of it, and just say this. You know, if you'll just be patient, if you'll just be patient... God will bring good things to you in his timing. Or we might even say it this way. Here's a good lesson, how to handle adversity. If you'll just remain faithful during the times when you're mistreated and when you're forgotten about, well, you know what? God will ultimately bring us fame and fortune and, and even family. That's what he did to Joseph. That's what he'll do to you. But I would contend to you that's not the way to interpret this text. It's not how it was intended to be interpreted. And here's why. You remember that Pharaoh wasn't the only one that had two dreams. Joseph also had two dreams. We can't forget the dreams that God gave Joseph back in chapter 37 because those dreams hang over this entire text. And in those two dreams that God gave to Joseph back in chapter 37, he explained to him, look, one day you're going to rise up and your brothers are going to bow down to you. In the first dream, that was represented by the, by the 11 sheaves of wheat that all bowed down to Joseph's sheep. In the second dream, it was represented by the 11 stars and the sun and the moon that all bowed down to Joseph. Joseph still remembered those two dreams. And it was just like Pharaoh. He gave him two, but the interpretation was one. And when we get here to chapter 41, we may think, well, this is the pinnacle. Joseph's gotten everything that he ever wanted. He's going down the streets of Egypt and everybody's bowing their knee before him. But listen, those weren't Joseph's brothers. What we read about here in chapter 41 is not the fulfillment of what God revealed would happen back in chapter 37. As I mentioned, this is not the be-all to end-all of Joseph's life. Joseph's promotion was not the end. It was only another step in God's providence to bring Joseph to the place where ultimately he would be able to save his family from, from sure death in the land of Canaan. But we'll have to wait for the rest of that to continue as we study Genesis. Right now, what I would say is rather than congratulating Joseph, I would submit to you that he's in the worst possible state he's been in since he's been in Egypt. You see, we could argue that it's one thing to remain believing in God-centered and faithful in the pit, but it's quite another thing to be believing in God-centered when you're at the pinnacle. James Boyce has said this, promotions often ruin people. And at this particular point, 
Joseph has been Egyptianized. His clothing is Egyptian. His language is Egyptian. His name is Egyptian. His wife is Egyptian. Everything he lived in and around was all Egyptian. But I want you to know Joseph was not ruined. In fact, I want you to note that there's a, there's a, 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 a piece of information there that tells us that the heart that beat inside his chest was still a Hebrew heart that was turned toward God. And we see it in what he, how he named his two sons. God gave him two sons right there during the seven years of plenty. And he named his first son Manasseh, which means he who causes to forget. And the birth of that little boy evidently caused Joseph to forget all of the appalling hardships of his life of slavery and imprisonment when he was in Egypt. And his name also signified through his birth that Manasseh had caused Joseph's intense longing for his father's home in Canaan to be eased. But then he had a second son, and he named him Ephraim. And Ephraim's name means to be fertile, to be fruitful. And many have suggested that by giving him this name, Joseph was celebrating all of the blessings that God had given him even while he was in the land of Egypt that was not his home. Here's the key thing that I want you to know. The name Manasseh and the name Ephraim were Hebrew names. They were not Egyptian names. And what we see is that though Pharaoh had done everything he could to Egyptianize Joseph by giving his sons Hebrew names, not Egyptian names. Joseph was reasserting his ethnic and spiritual origin. In other words, though, though Pharaoh had might think he was the one who had made Joseph by giving him all of the things that he had done, Joseph was declaring God was the one who has made me. It is God is the one who has brought me to the place that I am. Pharaoh probably thought Joseph was his instrument in economic survival. God was going to use him to be the instrument of producing the survival of his family. In fact, listen to the final verses of the chapter once more. So all countries came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine was severe in all the lands. You remember back in Genesis 12, God had told Pharaoh, excuse me, God told Abraham, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Right here in Genesis 41, we get an initial fulfillment of that in the fact that Joseph is able to bless the families of the world by being able to provide food for them. But what I want you to know is that God's promise to Abraham, though fulfilled partially in Joseph, was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. In fact, in Isaiah 53, we learn about the suffering servant. The suffering servant who, like Joseph, was one who was put in prison and, and was rejected and despised by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, the prophet says. He was one who was cut off from the land of the living, and he was numbered with the transgressors. But as the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians 2, and as, we, as Will quoted for us earlier, God has highly exalted Jesus and has given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And why, why did God exalt Jesus to this place? Well, Jesus himself says in John 6, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me will never be hungry. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven, and he who eats of this bread will live forever. God exalted Jesus so that he could be our Savior and our rescuer by being our spiritual food and our source for eternal life. 
And so if we look back here at Genesis 41, we might be able to summarize everything that Moses has told us about Joseph by saying that in his timing, the sovereign God promoted Joseph to become Egyptians' prime minister so that he could save the world from physical death because of famine. But then if we look forward for the rest of Scripture, what we will know is this. The sovereign God that exalted his suffering servant Jesus did so to become King of kings and Lord of lords in order that he might save and rescue the world from spiritual and eternal death because of sin. And it is that then that leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning. As we look at how Joseph's life mirrors and pictures what happens with Jesus later, we come to this. You and I are, in, are called to entrust ourselves to the sovereign God who in his own good time and providence exalts his suffering servant, Joseph then, Jesus now, to save and rescue the world. You see, that's why this chapter is so pivotal and it's why it's so important. It tells us how God in his providence put Joseph where he did so that Joseph could ultimately become the savior and the rescuer of his brothers and his father. And the rest of the scriptures tell us about how in his providence and according to his divine grace, God sent Jesus, the ultimate descendant of Joseph's brother Judah, to become the ultimate savior and rescuer of the world. And here's how all that applies to you and me. It was just as I shared with, with someone in my office earlier this week. How do you entrust yourself to this sovereign God? Well, Paul has said it this way in Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You want to know how to entrust yourself to the sovereign God who has done this for you? It is, first of all, to recognize that your sin has separated you from him. And if you remain separated from him, you will remain separated for eternity. But in Christ, he has provided you a way to be saved. And so by entrusting yourself to him, number one, you confess your sin before him and you confess him as Lord. You put all of your faith in what Christ has done and take it off of all the things that you have done. And you trust in his death, his burial, and his resurrection to be that which saves you. And when you do that, the scriptures say you will be saved. So let me ask you this morning, have you done that? Have you entrusted yourself to Jesus Christ. Is he your Lord and is he your Savior? Have you placed your trust in him? If your answer to that is no, I want you to know that now is the time. Today is the day of salvation. And he offers you that. If you have entrusted yourself to him, then here's the question. Will you continue to entrust yourself to him during the two long years of being forgotten about? during the moments of life when you don't really know how things are going to shake out, in the moments when you don't know what's coming next and you feel abandoned and you feel forgotten and when everything around you seems to be caving in, will you entrust yourself to that same God then? Because I want you to know he is still God and he is still working in his same timing and he is still working according to his sovereignty and he is still bringing about his plans just as he has always been doing and he always will continue to do. I would invite you this morning to entrust yourself to that God. Be saved by him and be comforted by knowledge of knowing that he is who he says he is. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. 
We thank you that we can be assured that you are always working out the details of our lives. And many times, Lord, when we look back, we don't always understand why you did what you did and how you're going about doing what you're going to do. But, but your word, your revelation of Scripture tells us is that one day you will come again and you will set everything right the way that it is supposed to be. And that is not a call for us to just resign ourselves to it and throw our hands up and quit. Actually, it's a call to action. It is a call that requires of us to repent of our sins and to trust in a Savior who has come to give His life in exchange for ours. It is a call for those of us who have been saved by that gospel to go out and share that good news with others. It is a call to action to understand that your scriptures Declare that you're a sovereign God who works in your timing. That you have provided us a Savior. And His name is Christ. And it is Him that we desire to honor. And it is Him that we desire to preach. I thank you for that opportunity this morning. And my prayer is that your Holy Spirit will minister and work in the lives of these who are here. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.